0: And now, here's this week's message from Hollyview Church. Paul Frederick is continuing our study in the book of Ephesians. He's in Ephesians chapter 4 with the message, The Battle of the Two Abrahams.
1: Hello, Hollyview Church. My name is Paul Frederick. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4 today. So if you have a Bible or an app or however you access the scriptures, please turn there to Ephesians Chapter Four. I have uh, I've been around a few years. I have the privilege of working on the uh, serving on the worship team at times, helping with the youth group at times, helping with the preschoolers at times. I think I'm on the preschoolers next week. Look forward to that. I love all those things. Uh, every so often, Joel will ask me to uh, give him a weekend off by being up here. I love the scriptures, although I don't love being the one to like presume to. Explain them to the church. I feel like it's a dangerous job. What if I misspeak? What if I mislead? The only safe thing I know how to do is to point us toward the author and perfecter of our faith. So that's my goal this morning. It's pretty commonly agreed upon that the letter of Ephesians is broken up into two parts. Uh, Chapters 1 through 3 give an exposition or an explanation, chapters 4 through 6 Give uh, an exhortation or an encouragement. The first half of the letter, Paul is giving us a lesson on who we are. And then in chapter four, which is where we're starting today, he starts telling us how that should change our lives going forward. I summarize it like this You are one in Christ, so act like it. I think that's the lesson in a nutshell. If we dig a little, though, there's some beautiful things to help us understand what that means a little bit more. But let me start where chapter 3 ends, and that's with a prayer of Paul. So this Paul is going to read a prayer of that Paul for us. Let's pray. We bow our knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory... He may grant us to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the holy ones what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us, to Him... Be the glory among the ones called out and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We've been hearing about chapters 1 through 3 the last few weeks, but the core lesson of those chapters, I think, is in chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. I think we'll have it up on the screen. I'm going to read it for us. So then you all are no longer strangers and aliens, but you all are fellow citizens with the holy ones and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you all are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit." The message is one of unity. All of us are being built into this holy temple in Jesus. One building made up of a diverse people who follow Jesus and are united in terms of their faith in him. Unity in diversity through him, through what he has done, through what he is doing, through what he will do. I think that's the lesson of the first half of the book. And now Paul turns to how that changes us. And today we're in Ephesians chapter 4. So let's read that together. If you're able, please stand with me while I read the passage. It's a little bit lengthy for the full read, but we're going for it, folks. Okay. Chapter 4 I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They've become callous and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self... Which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he can have something to share with anyone who's in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And I'm cheating with two more verses. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You can be seated. Thank you for... And may God add his blessing to his word. I want to zoom in on a couple of details before we look at a bigger picture here. Verses 1 through 4 talk about a calling. You are called. And verses 4 through 6 really hammer in the oneness. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. How many ones? Seven. A number of completion. He really wants us to get that point. In verses 8 through 16, Paul talks about gifts that the body was given, which he, he refers to the prophets and the apostles and the evangelists, and he refers to also Psalm 68, which we'll touch on. And lastly, he kind of talks about you have a new way of life. So let me, I'm going to put those ideas together in kind of a summary statement And that is this. Paul teaches us that we are called out of an old way of life into being built into a new unified humanity temple way of life characterized by loving like Jesus. That's my summary of chapter 4. That's the basic idea. But then, as I meditated on the implications of this passage, it seemed to me it turned into, for me, the worst locker room speech ever. Now, I've never really played a lot in the way of team sports, so I have to rely on movies and TV here, but you know the scenes where the coaches pumps up the players to do their best. Paul is kind of doing that, but it's a terrible version, in my opinion. From the perspective of our culture, it's just horrible. And in order to illustrate why it's terrible, I turned it into my mind, a battle between two Abrahams. Now, Abraham isn't even mentioned in this passage, if you didn't notice, let alone two of them, but it'll make more sense in a moment. Paul is writing to people that are supposed to be living in light of a calling. Paul is writing a letter to a church or churches, and if you've been around church, you may have heard this before, the, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. That's, how, that's what we translate church and ecclesia means the out-called ones, or the called out ones. Called out of what? Well, in chapter 4, it's called the way of living like the Gentiles. But what does it mean today? See, when I first started reading this passage, Paul's most immediately talking about a divide between Jews and Gentiles. But that's not our divide today. Now, Joel connected it last week, to the civil rights movement. And it was a good connection. And it's much closer to our present situation than Jews and Gentiles. But even the US racial divide in history, by the way, I'm thankful for those of you who balance out my lack of melanin. Uh, uh, It's important seriously to remember that, that the called out ones is meant to be a multitude, a multifaceted, multilingual, multicultural, multi-personality, unity that comes together in him. But in any case, Paul's point here certainly includes the race issue, but it's bigger than that. The divide Paul is getting at, I think, is, is almost anything that gets in the way of unity. In his context, the big community divide was Jews and Gentiles. In our history, it's included race. But those are symptoms of a bigger disease. The disease, I think, can be framed with the help of an Abraham, So let's meet him. Okay, I'm going to have a picture of him on the screen. That's a man named Abraham. Does anyone know who this guy is? Just curious. You don't get the answer. No, you don't get the answer. You're cheating. You're cheating. I'll give you a hint. He was an influential psychologist in the middle of the last century. He died in 1970. His name was Abraham Maslow. And if you don't know his name, you will probably know part of his work, which is usually illustrated as a pyramid, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Have you seen this thing? At The bottom, you have the physical needs, the food, the shelter, the air, then you have general safety, then then relationships, love and belonging, then self-esteem, and then self-actualization. Human beings have these needs that move up toward this top of the pyramid. Abraham Maslow kind of spearheaded this thing called humanistic psychology, which was kind of an alternative to things Freud was doing and B.F. Skinner was doing. That doesn't matter. But for our purposes, we want to look at this pyramid for a second. I was trying to think of a good representation of the way the Gentiles walked in our modern context. I know for some of the young people, this isn't quite modern enough. Maslow died before I was born. But his ideas, his ideas certainly still permeate the culture, look at the, look at the pyramid, and uh, these aren't necessarily bad things, but let me, let me show you how they get corrupted by giving you kind of a voice in your head as you go from the bottom to the top. You know what you need? You need this thing that will help your body feel better. If you just had that, you'd be all right. No, no, no. You know what you need? You need resources, then you'll feel safe, and then you can be better off. No, you know what you really need? You need relationships, you need friends, you need a significant other, you need a family, then you're better off. No, that's not quite good enough. You know what you need? You need achievement, you need respect of others, you need to feel good about yourself in the community, then you can feel better. But that's not what you really need. What you really need is to become the best version of yourself. You can do it. You are strong. You need to reach your full potential. In fact, you know what? You get to define what your full potential is. You can define what's good and what's bad for you. What's fascinating about these categories, again, not necessarily bad in of themselves, but they're almost the playbook of the evil one in the Bible. The temptation of Jesus in the gospels started with bread. He was really hungry why don't you just make some bread, Jesus, step one. Step two was physical safety. The devil says, just jump off here, and I'm sure the angels will catch you. He skips relationships. He goes straight to offering Jesus power and achievement and respect of everyone on earth. But let's go back to the Garden of Eden for a second with Adam and Eve, and the core temptation was to determine what was good and bad for yourself. It was a kind of Self-actualization, that was the temptation. Now, there's truth in Maslow's hierarchy, and it can be useful, Uh, but following your needs up to the ultimate goal of fulfilling yourself, fulfilling your full potential, that's a corruption of the evil one. And Paul has made reference to the evil powers in the world several times in Ephesians, and again he does in this chapter, he'll continue to reference them. In chapter 1 he says Christ has been placed above all other powers. In chapter 2 he says we used to be dead walking in the ways of the power of the air and the spirit that energizes the sons of the disobedience. I would say he's kind of saying we used to walk according to this pyramid. In chapter 3 he says the mystery of Christ is. is is bringing all kinds of people together and being revealed to rulers in the heavenly places. In chapter 4, he mentions we need to live a certain way and not to give the devil a foothold because he will corrupt these desires. There's a way in which the world lives, a way in which we all lived, and we've been called out of that and into something else. By the way, Paul doesn't blame people who live like this. Not really. In verse 18, what does he say? He says, they're darkened by their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Why? Because they don't know any better. Not really. What did our Lord say about the people who crucified him? He said, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. If you take away Jesus and his values, that pyramid makes all the sense in the world. It's the best you got. And when we walked that way, it was because we didn't know what we were doing. We were darkened in our understanding. We were ignorant, and we became callous. It reminds me also of Ecclesiastes, because I do have to make reference to the Old Testament. We were just chasing after wind under the sun, vanity of vanities. Remember how the author of Ecclesiastes talks about how he tried He tried pleasure. He tried to fill his life with pleasure. He tried to fill his life with learning. He tried to fill his life with building projects. He tried to become his best self. He finally figures out, that was a waste of time. At the end of the book, he says, fear God and keep his commandments. That's that's the whole thing for us. And everything we do will be evaluated. So that's one Abraham. He represents something like our highest cultural value be your best self, fulfill your highest potential, be your own God, really. In fact, it's something like the American dream. I have a hypothesis for why this is evil, by the way. When you seek your own self-actualization as the highest value, other humans and your relationships turn into tools that you use to get closer to your goals. People becomes a means to your self-actualizing. You're using them. All humans are created to be imagers of God in terms of in the scriptural story. When you treat them like tools for your goals, you've disrespected the Most High in whose image they are created. Back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. Paul says, but you did not learn Christ that way. That's not the way you learned Christ assuming that you've heard about him, that you are taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old humanity, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new humanity created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So let's look at another Abraham. This one you know. Father Abraham had many sons, Many sons had father Abraham and daughters, and I am one of them, and so are you, so let's all praise the Lord. Now, Grandpa Abe wasn't always the best example, okay? Let's be clear. He was a bit of a liar, a bit of a manipulator. He and his wife also horribly abused an enslaved Egyptian woman named Hagar in order to fulfill God's promise on their own terms. Terrible stuff. But let's look at Abraham at his best. He had a few shining moments that we can learn from. The first is that God called him, and he obeyed. Abraham lived a cozy life in the Ur of the Chaldean. He was just living with, with the world's ways, living for the pyramid, having, being cozy. And then Yahweh called him out, and Abraham went. He left his old life and embraced a new one to follow Yahweh. That took faith. His biggest shining moment, though was when he when he was willing to give up the most important thing in his life if God wanted it. Remember how Abraham was old? He couldn't have any kids. He hadn't had any kids. God said, you're going to have a bunch of kids. He wasn't sure if God could fulfill his promise about a son. So when he tried to make a substitute in a scheme with his wife and her servant, it caused all kinds of problems. But eventually God fulfilled the promise and Sarah gave birth to Isaac and And we know what happened after that, the promised son. God tests Abraham. Would he be willing to give up Isaac if it came down to it? The most important thing in his life that he's been waiting for forever? Abraham passes the test. He trusts God. He's willing to give up anything if God asks. Of course, another part of the story is that God was never actually going to have him go through with it. God was going to provide a substitute, which is what happens in that story and also in the bigger biblical story god provides his own substitute in his son so the righteousness of father abraham was in his faith in yahweh he finally figured out he didn't need to try to become his best self and force it he needed to trust the author of life himself life itself and be willing to give up anything in trust of his god the opposite of the way the snake in the garden would have you believe, where you determine what's good and bad on your own. At his best, Abraham trusted the goodness of God. And this is our calling. We're called out of the world, aiming toward its self-actualization and into trusting Yahweh, even to the point of giving up what's most important to us if it came down to it. And that is a steep calling. It's no small thing. The Apostle Paul is another example of this. He's called out of his previous life of being a Christian persecuting Pharisee and into a life where he trusts God. And look where it landed him. Shipwrecks, beatings, prison. That's not a recipe for self-actualization or respect from the authorities. It's not even a good recipe for safety. When you're called out of the way of the world, You may be asked to sacrifice. Jesus did. The apostles did. I think we're supposed to. Let's look at some of the specifics Paul uses, starting in verse 25. Therefore, putting away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share, sacrifice, with someone else who is in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as what's good for building up as it fits the occasion so it may give grace to those who hear. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath... These are good things, but it's kind of summarized down in verse 2 of chapter 5 walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering sacrifice to God there are examples here of don't do this do this but you can see a deeper principle it's about when we're growing in unity we're taking care of the body of Christ Paul says we're members of one another you don't just stop stealing that's that's step 1 step 2 is you share with those who are in need You don't just stop saying corrupting things. That's step one. Step two is you say things to build others up. You walk in love as Messiah loved us and he gave himself for us. See, the path of one Abraham leads to becoming your best self. The path of the other Abraham leads to be willing to give up anything for the sake of Jesus and his body. And this is the part of chapter four that has really been convicting me. As I studied it. Paul says elsewhere, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You don't belong to you. The implication of this calling is that becoming our best selves is no longer our goal. Serving and becoming like Jesus is our goal. Nothing more and nothing less. And that is a steep calling. Like Father Abraham, it starts by stepping out in faith when God calls and you're going to make some serious mistakes. I do. You'll probably hurt some people along the way like Abraham did. I do. But as you mature in Christ and by the power of His Spirit, we are called to give of ourselves, especially to the church. Now, I think we know this, but we're, we're not getting it twisted that the church is a building. It's the called out ones. The church is made up of other Jesus followers here and in the rest of the world, and Morelia, and the rest of Gresham. So the implications of being one body with with these people is this. When part of the body needs something, you tend to it. If I break my leg, you best believe I'm getting a cast on my leg. If my stomach is hungry, not hard to believe, I'm going to feed it something. If my heart is lonely, I'm going to find it companionship. Now you extend that to the body, to Jesus' body, I don't belong to myself. This is the part that's been convicting me lately. I'm speaking to myself. Paul, you don't belong to yourself. You are members, you're a member of one another with these people. If another part of the body hurts or has needs, I need to be willing to sacrifice to help it. It's the exact opposite of the values of this world. Instead of seeking my best self, I'm supposed to be seeking Christ's body's best self. That's why it makes a terrible locker room motivational speech. Okay, team, none of you are really what's important here, nor is the game we're playing. (laughs) We're here to represent and exalt Messiah and his body on the field. Now go out there and sacrifice your gifts and life energy for him, ignoring the whole goal of the world. (laughs) We don't belong to ourselves, we belong to one another. That's a convicting idea for me. It's part of what it means to be holy, by the way. Holy means set apart or dedicated. We shouldn't look like the rest of the world. We aren't here to seek our own self-fulfillment. Our Lord put it this way. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The rest will be added to you in his time. Do we trust him? Do we trust him when he said that? In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul quotes Psalm 68 about how this victorious king or victorious Messiah scatters his enemies. But let's read a little bit more about this victorious king, about his heart through Psalm 68 in verse 4. It says, sing to God, sing praise to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts, his name is Yahweh, exult before him. Who is this guy? Father of the fatherless. Protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Where is his holy habitation now? We're it. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out prisoners to prosperity. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. Awesome is God from his sanctuary. Where his sanctuary now. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Being one in Messiah is... The challenge, the method is to be imitators of God and give of ourselves for each other, loving like Jesus did. In such a community, you would never have to worry about foolishness like racism or divisions between Jews and Gentiles or divisions based on what, earthly political parties? Nor would you have slander or anger or abuse. We would all be members of one another, part of his body. Paul says at the beginning of the chapter, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray you would help me to love like Jesus loved, sacrificially. I need your help and your power to do that. I pray you would help this community to be unified as one body, as members of one another. I, help you, I pray you would help all of us to not seek our own self-fulfillment, but to seek you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for joining us here at Hollyview Church.